Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is a special series on Malcolm X and Black nationalism. In this series, we delve into the background of Malcolm X's action and thought in the context of Black nationalism, correcting the fundamentally mistaken notion that Malcolm X was a civil rights leader. He certainly did not see himself in that way and explicitly argued otherwise. This helps us place the Afro-American struggle in its dimensions beyond the current American nation state, including the Black Atlantic and beyond. Today, our guest is Claiborne Carson, author of Malcolm X, The FBI File, published in 1991 and republished in its second edition in 2012 by Skyhorse Publishing. Welcome, Claiborne. Good to talk to you. Yes, very good to talk to you. I, uh, I mean, your book is a classic. And, um, and I, I look forward to this uh, discussion. But for those of uh, our audience who may not know about you or the book, could you please give us a little bit of you know, background to yourself, particularly in relation to the subject of the book? Well, I, I think the best way of explaining the way I came to Malcolm X was as an activist during the 1960s. Um, Obviously, I was caught up in, in the events of that time, and particularly close to the people in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Uh, I joined a, an organization called the Nonviolent Action Committee in Los Angeles, and we kind of modeled ourselves after uh, SNCC, and because we felt that uh, of all the groups in what was called the Civil Rights Movement, um, they were the most uh, militant. And in many ways, they were, uh, as an organization, devoted to nonviolence. You know, the, that was in their name. Um, but uh, like uh, NVAC, uh, they were determined to use it to its uh, most militant uh, uh, extent. And What uh, year was that? Uh, well, this was... Uh, when you joined I, I joined in 1965, I guess it was. And before Malcolm's assassination or after? Uh, before, before. Right. And, um, you know, just right before, because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that was in February of that year. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that was when I actually arrived in, in Los Angeles and, and enrolled at, at UCLA. And uh, my background had been, I had been at the March on Washington. Um, I met uh, some people in... SNCC, uh, Stokely Carmichael, I guess, was the first person I met at a student conference. And, and then later that year, I met uh, Bob Moses, who was the leader of their uh, Mississippi effort. I thought about actually going to Mississippi uh, uh, during the summer of 64. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, you know, my first priority at that point was to try to graduate and be the first person in my family to graduate from college. And yeah. Uh, and I knew that unlike many of his volunteers, uh, I didn't have my own resources. I had to work during the summer in order to pay for my school expenses. 
And uh, I worked my way through UCLA, which probably wouldn't be possible now. But at that time, the fees were still low enough that I could do that. So, uh, so I went to Los Angeles, joined uh, NVAC, and became involved in, in their protest activities, which were more focused on urban issues, uh, the uh, uh, jobs, housing, you know, those sorts of, of issues, mm-hmm. and particularly uh, discrimination and employment. And we targeted uh, uh, grocery stores, banks, other institutions that didn't hire black people, even as clerks. And can I just ask you something? So you said you um, came to Los Angeles. Where did you come from? Where did you grow up? I grew up in New Mexico, in a small okay. town, uh, Los Alamos, actually. All right. uh, and uh, I... Um, you know, I, I kind of wanted to get out of out of New Mexico. I wanted to uh, like connect with uh, what was going on in the world. Uh, I had heard about the young uh, sit-in students, the Freedom Riders, and and quite frankly, I was just uh, really entranced by them. I, I just felt yeah. that they were doing something very useful. Uh, I liked uh, their, um, you know, kind of aggressive use of, of nonviolence. Uh, you know, they had a, a um, I guess, a policy of jail, no bail. Uh, right. the time That they didn't want to be bailed out. And many of them had spent the summer of 1961 in, in a Mississippi prison. Uh, so they were pretty tough people. Uh, you know, I thought yeah. that they were, they were doing things that I would like to do. And that's led me to come to the March on Washington. And uh, so I think NVAC was the closest equivalent I could get uh, to joining SNCC. And uh, I thought about that. And then actually, Stokely Carmichael encouraged me to do that. As I said, I thought of of coming south to join the Mississippi effort. Um, But but in in the end, I think I was best suited to being in a place like Los Angeles where I could get my education, and uh, but also um, be a part-time activist. But when later on the movement, uh, you know, when the Black Panthers came about in Oakland and, and California in general, what what was your um, relationship to the movement at that point? Well, I still kind of saw that in in SNCC terms. That is, the same transformation was going on within SNCC. Um, Stokely Carmichael had bet by that time become an organizer in Lowndes County, Alabama. And uh, you know, so he had worked with people who in the Lowndes County Freedom Organization, and they took the symbol of the Black Panther. Yep. And that's, that's where all these Black Panther parties that started in, um, in, I think one of the first was actually in Los Angeles. And then, of course, the Oakland Party became the, the main Black Panther Party. And uh, and I think that 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 transformation, um, you know, I, I identified it with it. Uh, you know, the original slogan was "Black Power for Black People," and it mm-hmm. seemed very reasonable for me. Uh, there, you know, in Lowndes County, they were there was a black majority, but they didn't have any political power. And so Stokely Carmichael and uh, began using that phrase. He was encouraged by Willie Ricks, uh, who uh, kind of shortened the phrase um, Black Power for Black People to Black Power. We want Black Power. 
And uh, so I, I kind of saw that again in terms of, of, of SNCC, the organization I admired the most, and uh, the organization I wrote my first book about. And uh, so I think that for me, they represented the best of the, um, I guess, what was called the civil rights struggle. I began to call it the black freedom struggle. Yeah. Because I, I think in Northern terms, you know, there, I think for many people, the, the civil rights struggle was kind of over once you had the Voting Rights Act passed yeah. in 65. But all the people I admired, including Martin Luther King, uh, you know, the, uh, they didn't retire. <laughs> they, yeah. uh, the, the struggle continued. And in fact, uh, it became more intense mm-hmm. because now, now there was more, more to fight for. You know, um, how to transform rights, which is kind of an abstract concept, into actual power mm-hmm. uh, to, to change the nation and change the world. So, uh, so I, I completely understood that and sympathized with that. And, uh, and, I, and I still maintain that connection with uh, Stokely Carmichael. I, he, he came out to Watts in, okay. in 1966, and he was talking about black power. And that's when we reconnected. And by that time, I was writing articles about the movement. And, and uh, in fact, I wrote an article about him. And so, um, in fact, I spoke on the same program with him at, at a black power conference in, in Berkeley. Uh, during that year. Right, right. Yeah. And you know, Stokely Carmichael is from Trinidad. And so that's, um, yeah, so he he's had an impact here as well in many. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Kwame Ture. Uh, yes. Became, yes. That's right. That's right. Uh, so about this particular book now, um, Malcolm X, the FBI Files, how did you um, come about to take this project on? Well, it was actually came out of a class I taught. Um, and this was in the early 1990s uh, with Spike Lee's movie. I, we knew that that was on the way. And uh, and so I started teaching a, a small, small undergraduate seminar on, on Malcolm X. And I realized that because of my work on King, I also had the FBI file for Martin Luther, uh, for Martin Luther King, but also for Malcolm X. And uh, so it occurred to me that um, this would be a good way of bringing together some of the ideas that I had developed. Because I put Malcolm X in kind of the same framework of how did he relate to the freedom struggle of the 1960s? And um, so therefore, for me, what I was interested in was not so much the abstract uh, black nationalism um, because obviously the nation of Islam had a, a you know its own um, unique form of of black nationalism. Uh, I asked the same question about Malcolm X as I would ask about King. What did he have to, to do with the struggles of the 1960s? And the answer was uh, not very much until he began to change mm-hmm. in the early 1960s. He became increasingly um, uncomfortable with that role of being on the sidelines uh, during a mass struggle. You know, at, at, at first he could just kind of criticize from the outside and, you know, why are these people being nonviolent and, and uh, 
why um, why are they trying to search so so much for citizenship rights? And uh, you know, which didn't make sense in his framework, uh, mm-hmm. especially as a member of the Nation of Islam. They were not, uh, you know, I I think in, in general they were they were not in favor of emphasizing racial integration. Yeah. So so uh, the the whole notion of desegregation was just not a high priority um, within the nation of Islam. But I think by 1963, Malcolm X began to realize that black people were speaking with their feet. You know, the, the, the scale of protests in the North and the South during 63 and 64 was becoming massive. And uh, he was at the March on Washington. He didn't participate in the March on Washington, but he saw 200,000 people there, most of them black, um, uh, participating in the march. And uh, so I think he increasingly began to see that as a leader, he needed to speak to that. And he tried, you know, he tried. uh, You know, I have the letters that he wrote to Martin Luther King. He wanted to have a a dialogue. He uh, wrote to him as early as the 1950s saying, you know, let's let's talk. Uh, Come up to to Harlem. King was not about to do that because, you know, he had been stabbed in uh, by a woman in uh, in Harlem who had probably been influenced by some of the rhetoric of the Nation of Islam, and uh, I mean she was crazy, but yeah, yeah. but she might. I, I I didn't know. Up. I wasn't aware of that fact that he was stabbed in Harlem. What year was that? Uh, this was 1958, I think. Oh wow! I I, I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, he was uh, he was stabbed. He was signing copies of his book Stride Toward Freedom. Uh, at a bookstore, and uh, uh, this woman came up and, you know, with a let, sharp letter opener, stabbed him in the chest and uh, almost killed him. Wow! And uh, that that he was, uh, the doctor said, if if she'd stabbed an, another half inch closer to his heart, he he would have bled to death. Wow! So, but you know, I think for for some of the um, for some listeners who may be unfamiliar with um, the theology of the Nation of Islam as it regards the civil rights struggle and um, and and black freedom, I, it's just probably useful to articulate it uh, for them. I mean, basically, it it was one of of um, where they believe that. Uh, you know, God would would come and and destroy the evil um, white people, white devils, basically, and that uh, it was no use to talk to white people because they were just inherently evil, and uh, that uh, what black people needed to do was to separate themselves uh, so that they wouldn't get caught up in the judgment, and therefore they were not supposed to take part in. Um, any sort of uh, political activities or integrate themselves into a nation that was going to be judged as in Sodom and Gomorrah days, basically. It, it, it's, it's that what... Would you yeah, have was, add to that? Yeah, how could you be in favor of uh, civil rights, um, you know, citizenship rights, when you're telling your followers not, don't even vote. Mm-hmm. You know, don't even participate in that. And, and actually, he 
forbid his members from going to the March on Washington. And uh, Malcolm X kind of stood on the sidelines because he was by that time living in Washington and couldn't avoid it. Yeah. And, I, and I think probably, you know, this is speculation, but probably he felt, gosh, I should be up there on that stage, at yeah. least presenting another perspective. Um, and uh, so I think he was getting uncomfortable with the constraints of his role. By the way, perhaps you could answer this for me. Maybe with one of the best people to, you know, in, in the March on Washington, where, where um, Dr. King spoke of this, and I know there are many others, but, but the famous one, um, where I, you know, I, I've noticed people in the background, you know, wearing these sort of, I don't know, fezzes, these white um, uh, hats that look, you know, Indian or, or Muslim, but they weren't Nation of Islam, that's for sure. I, I don't know who those people were. Do you? Do you know who I'm talking about? A lot of them were members of the um, Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. Okay. Uh, were marshals at the at the March on Washington. I think that might be the people you're you're referring okay. to. Okay. Yeah, I I always wondered who those people were, and I could never find an answer. Yeah. By, the, by the way, Malcolm X wrote a letter to Martin Luther King just uh, a month before the March on Washington, mm-hmm. and again he pleaded with him, you know, come. Come to Harlem. Let's have uh, an, a, a public dialogue. Now, the chances of Martin Luther King on the eve of the March on Washington going and having a dialogue with Malcolm X in, in Harlem, uh, he was not about to accept that kind of an offer. And plus that, I, I think uh, Martin Luther King understood that um, Malcolm X was, could hold his own in, in an argument, and it would, it, that would be on his own grounds. And so many of the people there um, would be more sympathetic to Malcolm. And I think that when, after what we call the Watts Rebellion in 1965, Martin Luther King did come uh, to South Central Los Angeles. And, uh, and his reception was not all cordial. You know, there were people yeah. that were, who were prepared to boo him and um, you know, just say that you're kind of ir- irrelevant now. But, uh, you know, I think most people kind of gave him credit for showing up and stating his position. And, uh, you know, it, it's uh, I didn't actually go to that meeting because it was it was meant for only um, people in the community. And at that time, you know, I was involved with a civil rights group in South Central, but uh, I didn't live in South Central. So, mm-hmm. so I. I kind of, I, I probably should have used my press credentials by that time and, and got in the meeting anyway. Now I, I, I definitely regret not, not being there and seeing for myself. Yeah. Um, wow. it, it, was, mm-hmm. uh, it was interesting that, you know, so, and later on, I think that Martin Luther King would have met with Malcolm X had he not been assassinated. Because he did come to Selma, he met with Coretta King, um, and he assured her that uh, you know that he didn't want to make life difficult for Martin Luther King by being there, and that in fact he might make life easier for Martin Luther King by uh, if Malcolm X was the alternative, maybe white people would listen more to to Martin Luther King. The introduction to the book, I think, it's really, really insightful and important. You wrote it so long ago, but I think the things you've pointed out and picked up there 
have not been picked up in other writings, and I think it's too important to ignore. Unfortunately, it sort of has been ignored in a lot of ways, and so I'd like to discuss it some more because they're very, very important insights that you have. So basically, as I understand it, and I'll give you my summary of it, and you can elaborate on it, agree or disagree whether my understanding is correct. So one of the things you talk about is the lack of serious scholarship on Malcolm X, You know how writers look at Malcolm X from a personal and a sort of exceptional point of view, You know, not placing him within a larger context and not showing how the larger context also fed into his ideas as well. So he wasn't just, you know, a a figure preaching from above, you know, sending out his wisdom to other people. He was evolving within an environment which itself was also evolving. So that's interesting in and of itself. Now, another point which is very, very important, I think. You notice how the FBI was far less interested in Malcolm X than they were in Martin Luther King. They felt King was more of a danger, mostly, in my understanding, because of his ties with communists like Bayard Rustin and those early activists before him. You know, and it's only later on that Malcolm became a subject of interest for the FBI. This seriously subverts the narrative you know, that Malcolm X was the really dangerous one. And finally, I think your most profound and I think very, very important insight Uh, was that you were looking at how Malcolm was alienated from the black community and how Malcolm speaks to this alienated consciousness as opposed to Martin Luther King's extremely rooted consciousness in the black community, in black history, in black struggle. I think those observations really shift the discourse in very important ways. I'd like you to expand on those things for us. Well, I think that there's a misconception that people get um, who have read the autobiography of Malcolm X, and which became a bestseller. Uh, Malcolm X became more of a, I guess, important historical figure after his death than before that uh, one of his frustrations, I think, is that he was a very successful recruiter uh, for the Nation of Islam. But um, probably during most of his life, you could have fit the members membership of the Nation of Islam into you know, a few of the largest Baptist churches. Um, you know, it, it, the, the scale of the size of the movement now that was that began to change in the 1960s, and and it became much larger. But in terms of of you know just one example of that, and and if someone questions it, just go back and look at at uh, a survey that was done. I think it was published in Newsweek um, by one of the polling places, and they asked, um, I think in 1963, who. Who are the leaders of the black community, and they, and ask, you know, black respondents. Now, you know, we can question the polling, but I, I don't see any reason why they were, you know, they didn't have any great interest in lying about it. But the Malcolm X was barely an asterisk. You know, there yeah. wasn't even one percent. 
mm-hmm. of black people identified with Malcolm X. Elijah Muhammad was slightly more popular, yeah. uh, more well-known, maybe about one or three percent, I think. Um, but the vast majority of black Americans at that, at that point were, uh, when they asked the question, who is the most um, significant leader of black people? You know, Martin Luther King would have won, you know, easily. Yeah. Uh, so, so the question really becomes, I think that Malcolm X felt that if he could move beyond the constraints of Elijah Muhammad in terms of his his approach, that he could build a mass movement. You know, he was obviously a tremendous orator, um, someone who people were attracted to, but I think that he got more and more um, dissatisfied with the message of don't protest, don't try to gain your rights. Uh, You know, that's all irrelevant, just join the Nation of Islam. And he had reason within the Nation of Islam to begin to question, you know, the, the, you know, his discovery that Elijah Muhammad was having children by um, other women, um, that, uh, you know, the, the financing, you know, that like a lot of religious organizations, the uh, you get poor people to give money or to raise money uh, for a few people who are living in high style. And, um, and, you know that that's you know that's not any different from any other um, kind of disorganization where you know the the minister is driving around at that time in a Cadillac and and mm-hmm. a lot of the commissioners are are very poor you know so yeah he one thing about Malcolm is that he had a great deal of integrity yeah he was not he was not interested in being rich he was not interested he really was sincerely interested in offering a positive alternative for for black people and to do that within the nation of islam was just you know he 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 knew that that would be seen as a threat to elijah muhammad and it was you know in in the end as i point out in in that book uh you don't have to think about a FBI conspiracy to understand why Malcolm X was killed. Um, uh, you know, I, I think that you can see in that there was almost demand that he be killed by those who continued to support Elijah Muhammad. Right. That he was a traitor. That he was no longer seen as somebody to uh, uh, to be supported, or in, but somebody who had challenged and was a potential challenger to Elijah Muhammad. And, uh, you know, I think it was in the end kind of inevitable that that Malcolm X, if he had lived, would have developed a, a uh, another organization. And he did, you know, the Organization of African-American Unity. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that organization uh, would have kind of served as a bridge between uh, what we know as the civil rights movement and uh, the Blacks nationalist movement. Um, 
because I, I don't think that there was an essential conflict. You know, even if your your ideology is calling for racial separatism, you're still a maybe reluctant, but you're still a citizen of the United States, and it is very helpful to have equal citizenship rights. Yeah, I, I think that's another important insight in your um, introduction about seeing the nationalist integrationist uh, poles as part of a continuum rather than a fundamental, mutually incompatible opposition like uh, so many people do. Yeah, you, yeah I think, I think there well is a, a break between those who are more pessimistic about the possibilities, long-term possibilities of racial integration. And that argument is still going on. You know, there are still uh, black people who say, you know, don't trust white liberalism. It's never going to free you. Um, don't vote. Um, or if you are going to vote, you know, just uh, kind of stick to black capitalism and, you know, black people have to do it ourselves. Uh, and those are, those are legitimate differences. Yeah, I I think that those arguments are going to go on as long as black people are simply not equal in so many respects to white people, and especially in terms of wealth. Right. And, uh, so I think that there's always going to be people who will say you're going, you know, look, if after all this time, uh, you know, black people are still much poorer than white people on average, maybe you should rethink strategy. Maybe you need to emphasize more the economic realm. And, uh, yeah, so and this is kind of what Ice Cube, the rapper Ice Cube, is was doing with his contract with Black America. And then he's gotten a lot of heat for criticism over about um, agreeing to work with, with uh, the Trump uh, administration or campaign on it. Um, because for him, he... Yeah, as far as I see it, it's a very sort of nationalistic uh, Malcolm X type position. He's saying neither the Democrats or Republicans are my friends, so it doesn't matter who, who I'm dealing with. While so many people are horrified, um, well, how can you work with Trump? He's saying, you know, I, you know, it's it's well, both of them are are equally not, you know, uh, uh, outsiders to the black community. We ultimately have to see for ourselves, and if we're going to get help from Trump. I'll take it. If you get help from this one, I'll take it because it's really up to us. I, uh, and, uh, and I think a lot of the criticism that he's been receiving, all that whole debate reflects exactly what you're talking about. Well, I, I think in principle, the notion that um, black Americans shouldn't trust any political party uh, to always represent their interests, except for if there was a, a black political party. But even in, within that, there would be a division of interests. Uh, the, the notion that all black Americans uh, favor the same policies is just wrong. I think the only uh, question really is when someone is representing the community, are they doing it for the right reasons? That is, uh, not for selfish reasons, not to get their own favors taken care of, um, but really represent some significant constituency that's that's real that has control over uh what uh leaders try to do in their name you know that's the nature of of democracy you know we we live in a 
in a world of representative democracy. So who represents us? Uh, parties don't do that. Uh, individuals uh, sometimes do that, and parties sometimes do that. Uh, but individuals never represent Black Americans. You know that that is something that there there needs to be some process by which uh, leaders like that are like any leader is held accountable. You know, if you represent us, we want to make sure that you're not getting um, uh, favors for yourself. You're not doing it because of ego. You're you're doing it because you represent a community who controls you and who gives you instructions on what you should be um, advocating. Uh, so I so I think that's that's the, always been the problem. You know, back in the day when uh, the Republicans and Democrats competed, uh, you know that that's always been the case that. Um, a political uh, candidate can come into a black church and and maybe put five hundred dollars in the collection uh, plate. Maybe now it'd be a lot more than that five thousand dollars in the collection plate mm-hmm. and get a warm reception from the from the minister and maybe even an endorsement. But that's not the way politics should be uh, undertaken. You know that everything should be out in the open. you know who, who are you who are you really representing? And what do you get back? Uh, is it uh, favors? Is it bribes? Is it, you know, whatever it is. Um, anyone who wants to represent me, I want to know what are you getting out of this? Um, are you really representing me? So I don't think that's changed. That's, that's been a, an issue as long as I can think back in terms of uh, black political life. Yeah. Now, now let's to get back to your book itself. Um, what would you say some of the main revelations of your examination of the FBI files were? I think primarily um, it was for me a way of of measuring who was really considered a threat, and um, and it's not always who uh, talks about black nationalism. You know, the, uh, I mean, one of the, one of the ways in which you could compare the, the treatment that, uh, say, members of the Nation of Islam got from the government, um, as opposed to people on the political left, you know, that, uh, like, um, you know, you could t- talk about Du Bois, you could talk about, um, you know, Baird Rustin, you could talk about all, a lot of these leaders who were investigated. Um, and um, there wasn't that urgency on the question of black nationalism. Um, black nationalism, in terms of FBI concern, um, was only uh, apparent when you had uh, Malcolm X during his period of of breaking away from the Nation of Islam. You know, well, one of the differences was that what prevented you from getting a government job? You know, belonging to about uh, several hundred organizations, uh, leftist organizations, uh, could get you barred from federal employment. Uh, joining the Nation of Islam didn't necessarily do that. Right. Uh, it was not on that list. Uh, so, so it wasn't really, uh, they weren't really after a religious movement um, in terms of the FBI. Right. But what, um, 
in terms of, say, Du Bois or Rustin, and then later King, uh, it would wouldn't it have been more because of the links with communists and and the communist party and and so forth and then part of the Cold War? Exactly, exactly. That was yeah. that was the major concern, and it it was uh, during the entire Cold War period that that was the ma- major target. Of course, now we're in an era where terrorism has kind of replaced uh, communism as the as the uh, um, you know, the source yeah. of danger in the world, yeah. Yeah, so being a Muslim then therefore would be something much more uh, looked at suspiciously than perhaps even being a communist these days. We have Bernie Sanders, who um, <laughs> who uh, I think he was a, a delegate or something uh, with the Communist Party at one time. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I think that that, uh, it still has its sting. I mean, you know, it still can be a major weapon of discrediting somebody to to say that they're communist or even socialist um, and and now I, I think that um, you know black nationalism would be more of a curiosity uh, I think that all um, politicized black people in some ways are uh, black nationalists in the sense of of trying to emphasize uh, our identity as black people and our common interests as black people. But uh, within, within that uh, broad framework, there are uh, people who believe in black capitalism, um, mm-hmm. um, people who believe in revolutionary black nationalism, uh, pan-Africanism. You know, there's lots of different variants and yeah. each of them has uh, you know, a, a range of, of people representing that. Uh, that faction in the black community. Yeah. In in your um, looking at the FBI file, was there anything um, that uh, touched upon, you know, the the concern because, uh, about the murder of Malcolm X? I mean, I think it's it's very important that uh, you know when was it last year? The families of uh, JFK, MLK, and I think also Malcolm X, but they certainly called for. You know, a, a truth and reconciliation uh, a commission, and and uh, you know, further looks into it in a in a big way that you know I don't think you know has been maybe ever done. Certainly not done recently. I, I don't know if if your look into the uh, FBI files shed any insight there for you or us at all. I think what was surprising to me was that um, the FBI really had. Um, kind of minimal interest in the Nation of Islam until uh, Malcolm X began to be more outspoken uh, during the 1960s. Uh, during the 50s, uh, it was kind of a curiosity. Um, there was some sense of, of investigating them as, as, a, as a religious organization, but uh, that was just not on the high priority list of the FBI. Um, the Cold War was, and they were kind of irrelevant in Cold War terms. Um, and they were not politically militant. Uh, so um, even as the struggle for civil rights uh, developed, they were, they were kind of on the sidelines. Right. And, uh, and so most of the interest was um, those people who were um, disrupting the status quo. Yeah. And, and that, that 
led them to you know, pay a lot of attention to Martin Luther King, who got most of the attention. And he certainly was not a black nationalist. Yeah. Uh, it was far more uh, the focus of the FBI than uh, Elijah Muhammad or Malcolm X, but except toward the very end when Malcolm X began, uh, especially when he left the United States, that attracted the attention of the CIA. Um, and when he returned, he was more of a focus because of his uh, potential to be, as in uh, Hoover's terms, uh, potential to be the Black Messiah. Yeah. Uh, he uh, would, would he be the person who would step forward and bring together all of the different uh, militant out elements in the Black community? And that, that was a concern, but um, by the time that became a concern, that was about the time he was assassinated. Mm-hmm. So, you, you know, in Spike Lee's um, movie, and, and I, will, I do want to ask you, you know, about how you got Spike Lee to, to write the forward for your book, but um, uh, in, in the movie, there's a little scene where the FBI uh, agents are, are listening into Malcolm and, and they're commenting how boring he was uh, as opposed to uh, Martin Luther King. Um, do you want to make any sort of comments on that? And then also just how, uh, if you have any story of, of interesting story of how uh, Spike Lee, um, uh, you, you got him involved to write the uh, preface. Well, uh, to take the latter question first, um, I actually did not meet him before uh, he wrote the introduction. That was uh, arranged by the publisher. Um, his, uh, he was in New York and he was able to contact him and get him to, to write the introduction. Um, we were kind of in indirect contact over, over the film, but I wasn't uh, asked to be one of his advisors. I wish I had been, uh, but, um, but that did not happen. So it was only later that I actually got to, to meet and talk to can I ask you why why you wish you had been? Is is there some is like is it maybe because you're critical of of certain interpretations in the movie? Yeah, um, but you know, I, look, I thought it was a wonderful film, and I think, but two two thirds of the way through, though, I think it kind of um, lost its steam, and and I think it was largely because he didn't really know how. Uh, to end the story, or maybe it was just that they ran out of money in terms of, of uh, uh, you know, it was an expensive film, and I know that he was really hard-pressed to bring the money together. Yeah. But it, it seems like the last maybe half hour, 45 minutes of the film, he's really waiting to be assassinated. And yeah. uh, there's not a lot about his effort to reach out to, say, the civil rights struggle, um, you know, the, the young people in SNCC. Uh, there's not a, a lot about how he, uh, what he wanted to do at the end. Um, and uh, so I think that, you know, that, that was a bit disappointing and I, and I wish that more had been um, said there um, mm-hmm. so that we could kind of understand where he might have gone if he had lived. Yeah. And uh, I think you only get a hint of that in the film. And that's what I tried to do in the introduction is to try to give an idea of how his attitudes were changing on a number of different issues. Um, but most importantly about the need for protest and struggle. 
Uh, he, he wanted to be part of that. And I think that, you know, when I think of what would have happened if, if uh, Malcolm X had been around as, as a Stokely Carmichael is emerging as a leader, as the, after the founding of the Black Panther Party, you know, um, I think that there was a generation of young Black activists who were looking for an experienced leader like Malcolm, who had, who had their respect. And, uh, and I think a lot of the squabbles over, you know, just uh, who is going to lead the Black Power movement, the dispute between the more Black nationalists and the more, um, I, I guess, like the Black Panther Party, more uh, activist side. Um, you know, those, those kinds of disputes, I think he could have stepped in and said, you know, look, you, you know, these are not, uh, they should not be div- divisive issues within the Black community. Mm-hmm. If we really want to build a movement, we have to, you know, have a, a more unified um, view of where we're going and how we're going to get there. And, uh, and I think he, he had that kind of respect. And, uh, and I think in the late 1960s, there were so many internal squabbles, you know, between, you know, I, I was in Los Angeles and I saw the, the uh, dispute between uh, the Black Panther Party in Los Angeles and, and uh, Maulana Karinga and his US organization. And, and, you know, I was just um, 50 yards away when there was the shootout on the UCLA campus and, mm. and which had the effect of, of damaging both organizations. And, and uh, you know, after, after that shootout, uh, I, I don't think I was alone among the activist students of that time who said, you know, look, I'm not going to get in the middle of some, um, gun battle between um, black people. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> I decided to just focus on my studies for a while, and because mm-hmm. uh, I because I had friends in both organizations. Yeah, and I I uh, I had students in both. You know, by the time I was started teaching in the late nineties, I had students who were kind of drawn to uh, each of these two organizations, as well as the Nation of Islam. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I could see among my students that if you if you insisted that it had to be, you know, I, I think I remember Aldrich Cleaver saying either you're part of the solution or part of the problem, and we are the solution. Basically, is what he yeah. mm-hmm. And that kind of you know, it's, it's our way or no way. And and when you're talking about an organization where the leadership comes from the top down. Mm-hmm. That I think is always an unhealthy situation. Yeah. Uh, then that is almost a recipe for internal disputes, which the FBI effectively exploited. Yeah. So once they understand that these organizations don't trust each other, they will do their best to foment that distrust. And that's exactly what the counterintelligence program, the COINTEL program, that's what it was about. Yeah. It was uh, about floating. Do you accept the um, the the, uh, the idea that the FBI, um, you know, were probably had a very big hand in the assassination of Malcolm X, and and I suppose you know the King and the Panthers, Fred Hampton, and so forth. Or uh, do you hold? Do you reserve judgment on that? I, I think. With respect to Malcolm X, um, they had very little role. If 
they had a role at all. It was, we know that this is happening and we're just stepping away from it. Uh, we're, we're, we're going to let it happen. Um, you know, the, the, when, when the newspaper of the nation of Islam, Muhammad speaks has a, an article saying Malcolm X is a traitor worthy of death. Mm-hmm. And two months later, he's dead. <laughs> you don't yeah. need the FBI to explain his death. Yeah. So, um, so I think that all the study I've done, uh, probably about two thirds of the counterintelligence programs against black militancy from 67 on were directed against the Black Panther Party. Right. And that was clearly their most, uh, um, their favorite target because that was attracting young people. And it was, and in that they had, they could work together with local police uh, as they did in Chicago to target Fred Hampton. Mm -hmm. So, so I think that when we look at the FBI, uh, uh, by the time black militancy reaches its peak in the late 1960s, um, you know, the nation of Islam is not, not a, a major concern. Right. Yeah. Very interesting. Very interesting. Now I, I was, uh, I had a question prepared to, to ask you and, and maybe you've kind of answered it. I, I was going to ask, you know, whether researching, you know, while researching the book, um, you know, did you, did you change your mind about Malcolm X in any way or did it strengthen uh, what you already knew? It, it sounds to me that the answer might be that um, you might have been surprised at how disinterested the FBI were in the Nation of Islam and Malcolm in the early days, and and it's only later. Uh, but uh, I don't know. You tell me if if uh, if there's anything else, or if I'm right at all. Well, I, I think it was tragic um, for Black Americans to lose a leader of the quality, um, you know, not the intellect. Uh, the integrity mm-hmm. of a Malcolm X, you know, you don't easily replace a leader like that. Yeah, and so I think it was was tragic that that happened, and and I think even more tragic that uh, black people carried out the assassination. Yeah, um, I mean, the, just to speak to those two things. I mean, when you talk about you know the the tragedy of of losing him, I mean, Aussie princes. Uh, I mean, no, no, um, uh, oh, I'm forgetting his last name, but, but who, um, who gave the eulogy about, you know, uh, Malcolm was our, uh, black shining, uh, prince, um, our Aussie manhood. Davis. You're talking about yeah, Aussie Aussie Davis. Davis. Yeah. Aussie D, yeah. Um, and, uh, um, yeah. And, and, uh, I mean the, the, the deep, deep, deep effect that he had on people, myself, for example, I mean, my life changed because of Malcolm X and, and so many, you know, even other people who I've researched, uh, I mean, who I've interviewed for this, um, uh, for this series, you know, say, same sort of, of deep, profound transformation at, at a psychological level. So something, you know, just change the way you see yourself, the world. Uh, um, and, and in that sense, it, it was radical, uh, you know, from a very personal, uh, transformational sense. If, if, uh, uh, I, when I saw the, um, the, your dedication to the book and, uh, I, 
assuming it's to your son, and his uh, his middle name was Malcolm. I was wondering if uh, if that was in honor of Malcolm X at all. Was it? Yes, it was. Yes. Right. Uh, I mean, did did Malcolm X have have that kind of effect on on you as well, or or not, or or were you not particularly impressed? Well, I, I, <laughs> yeah, I, I think that one of the things that many people might not realize is that Malcolm X is one of those figures who became more influential after his death than before. Mm-hmm. So even when you were, so now you were, you know, you were living during that time. So was that true for you personally? So like while he was alive, you didn't really take him on so much, but after his death, then he became yeah, more important. I, I, when he was part of the nation of Islam, I, I kind of had a resentment of the nation and uh, its its people because, you know, I was very much involved in trying to bring about civil rights. Right. Uh, and so I was one of the people who were protesting. And so when I saw people who were, who seemed to me, you know, kind of guided by this mystique of a religious leader and, uh, you know, uh, when I'm out protesting and getting arrested, they're selling their newspaper. And it just, it just seemed to me like until Malcolm began to change, I felt about them kind of like I would feel about any uh, religious cult, you know, that, yeah. that uh, the whole purpose of a religious cult ultimately is to, to make uh, the leaders rich. You know, it, yeah. it's uh, getting poor people to give their money to rich people, which, you know, I think happens within the Christian tradition and mm-hmm. you know, the, the minister with the Cadillac and, and uh, you know, all the people in the congregation poor. Uh, you know, that, that's, uh, that's unfortunately that salvation often comes with a price. Yeah. And so you find people who are desperately in need of, of hope and, and salvation. And you say, you know, yes, I, I will, but you know, I, I'm going to charge, charge you for the, for the favor. Yeah. And, um, and you know, that's, that's deeply ingrained in American history. You know, yes. the, the, uh, the religious huckster. It's, it's, it's not a, it's not an Islamic thing. It's not a Christian thing. It's, it's mm-hmm. that natural tendency of people to think that a charismatic figure can save them. Yeah. And, uh, and be their, their, um, link to God. You know, that, you know, what, what is, what is the prophetic tradition? It's somebody who says, you know, I, I, I spoke to God last night and here's what God wanted me to tell you. And if you can make that argument convincingly, I guess if you're unconvincing in that, you probably end up in an insane asylum or something. Yeah. <laughs> but if you, can, if you can convince people of that, they will give you anything. Yeah. yeah, because you are you are the prophet, mm-hmm. and uh, you know I I think that has made me very skeptical of the whole notion of of religion. You know, when I look up to the sky, I see stars. You know, I see um, the universe, mm-hmm. and um, and the universe doesn't speak back to me. Yeah. 
So, so I'm, I'm a very skeptical person, although I do have a strong sense of that, of the sacred, of values, of, you know, that the prophetic tradition can also convey what it means to, to be a good person, what it means to, um, what, what are the enduring values that, uh, that human beings have, um, evolved to understand and uh, i think we we put that label of god or allah and you know but it it's it's really something that i you know i i recognize throughout humanity you know that's what that's what becomes our ideal of, of what makes for a better life what makes for a, a more um that's what makes saints. Yeah, that's what yeah. makes, that's what makes the king. That's what makes a, a Malcolm X. But yeah. I, I also find that people who are not particularly religious um, or um, you know can can have that same kind of of understanding. You know, I I, I think one of you know one of the great insights in the preface that you wrote for the book too was um, how. Malcolm X spoke to an alienated consciousness and that, that he came, you know, from, he, he wasn't rooted in the black church in black history and in black institutions in the black community in a way that Ma, uh, Malcolm, I'm Martin Luther King, you know, certainly was, you know, and, uh, and I, I, th- I thought that was very, very insightful. And I think it's, it's why Malcolm X spoke to me particularly as, um, as a, as a, child of immigrants growing up and uh trying to integrate and uh, and and succeeding to to a very large degree but um but not understanding some of the you know deep you know psychological aspects of that process and then you know having this sort of blazing discovery um of of what i was you know of, of what i what what i was doing to myself psychically in in, in so many ways but um I was wondering about yourself because you were you were telling me how you were from New Mexico. Uh, I'm not aware. I could be wrong. I'm not aware that there's a, a large black community there. And then you you went to Los Angeles. Okay. So to me, I would have thought that perhaps that sort of you know that sort of thing might have attracted you more than the kind of deeply rooted uh, Martin Luther King uh, uh, type. Um, uh, you know, scene or, or whatever. Do you want to expand on that? Yeah, I, I was, when I came to Los Angeles, I was fascinated by, um, you know, just being in a big city, um, the excitement of it. Um, some of that excitement was in the black community there, but some of it was, you know, I, I was at UCLA during that time. Um, I worked at a division of Columbia Pictures during that time. You know, all of all of it was just for someone growing up in a small town and come to come to a place like Los Angeles and and you see the um just the the excitement of just living there. Yeah. And uh so you know, so it wasn't like I came looking for uh I was looking for the movement, certainly. Right. Um, but I wasn't going to find it, uh, you know, I, 
there's just no way I would have been drawn to uh, a regimented organization where people are walking around with their their ties and suit right. and all that sort of stuff. And you know, and so I I think that that just made me, I guess, different in the sense that. Um, you know, as I said, I, you know, Malcolm was, was more of a curiosity for me because here was, here was this person coming from this background who seemed to be saying some really exciting things, but it wasn't, it wasn't his religious teachings. It was the fact that here was somebody who was um, a, an example of the rising militancy of the black community. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so I, I, I kind of came to Malcolm late and, and in large measure, I think, um, what he was saying during the last year of his life. Right. Well, when you say late. Um, so, that even, so that even the autobiography of Malcolm X yeah. was, was an interesting story. It was kind of a curiosity because it was so different from my own background. Yeah. You know? And, uh, you know, that it was, it was more like reading almost you know, a history book about the 19th century, you know, that right. it was interesting, fascinating um, to read like the uh, um, narrative of Frederick Douglass. Yeah. Um, but you, it, you didn't identify with the autobiography as such. It was interesting, but it wasn't your story kind of. No, it just wasn't. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. I, and so, so this is interesting too because I th- I think you provide an excellent perspective on this on the kind of mainstreaming of Malcolm X and sort of turning him into a civil rights leader because I mean f- f- my own I mean I was born in '68 right so um, just to give you an idea of my age and and I I became aware of Malcolm X uh, while he was still a kind of outlaw figure. You know, when, when the picture of him holding the gun by the window, which is a really, when you know the true story, it's a tragic um, picture because he's defending himself against people from the Nation of Islam. But, but you know, the way it's been appropriated, you know, like the Che Guevara kind of picture, the, the icon is that, you know, by any means necessary. But but just having that picture with the phrase by any means necessary was was electric. You know, it was it was like an outlaw type of thing it, it, it was uh you know you couldn't get his speeches anyway you, you know you had to you know go to some you know really sort of radical people and you know to find uh you know the cassettes and and whatnot to, to hear his speeches and and we i trade them with with other people and you know they'd have farrakhan or whatever and um you know it was still underground and and you know, not part of the mainstream. And he was seen as, you know, figure, still a figure of hate and division, uh, anti-white demagoguery and, and violence. Whereas, you know, Martin Luther King was, you know, was revered. Um, but he, you know, Malcolm X is now, you know, is called a civil rights leader. And, and that whole process, I, I'd really like to hear your reflections on it because I mean, you, you were there live. <laughs> I mean, you're not looking back on it, you know, you've experienced that and, you know, kind of connected to it. Cause I think Spike Lee's movie had a big, a big part in it. So I'd yeah. really like to hear your reflections. Well, I, I think that the people who I 
contrasted Malcolm X with, I guess, would be the those who came out of the movement, the Stokely Carmichael's, the Bob Moses, uh, you know, the, the the people who, because of their experience in the movement, and and many of the people in the group that I was affiliated with, the Nonviolent Action Committee, you know, that they they were transforming themselves, and their transformation, of course, is going to have a much more of an impact. You know, when Stokely Carmichael started talking about black power, then, you know, that resonated with me because I kind of understood, you know, how he got there. With with Malcolm X, it was more of his story of becoming was more a story of breaking away mm-hmm. rather than, you know, he's only, he's was only able to begin that process of building the organization of African-American unity. Uh, that's probably something I, I would have been interested in, in affiliating with, you know, because yeah. it was one of the organizations, you know, uh, you know kind of like the, um, the Black Panther Party, you know, that, that I was drawn in that direction. I didn't, I um, never joined it because, uh, again, quite frankly, coming out of my stick experience, I was a little bit skeptical of an organization where this top-down leadership. Uh, right. you know, I'm not used to following orders, so I, I don't think I would have been. You know, it, it appealed much more to to young black people who were looking for guidance, yeah. uh, looking for looking for a leader. I wasn't looking mm-hmm. for a leader. Um, yeah, and you know, because I, I remember when I first uh, encountered um, Eldridge Cleaver. And he came to UCLA and, and, uh, you know, that there was that dogmatism. <laughs> I, I remember him, you know, the first time I saw him speak and I was, it was in a relatively small room, maybe a couple of hundred, mostly students. And he was this guy who, you know, all of us knew he had been in prison for a long time and he, you know, just got up and, and uh, you know, it was the type of person who would just pound the table and just, uh, and say, this, this is the, this is the true yeah. message. And as a student, I, you know, like I don't, I wouldn't have gotten up and say, well, you know, I accept some of what you say, but let's discuss this. Yeah. <laughs> that, that was not, that was not the way things worked back then. And and the fact that I also knew um, Maulana Karinga, at that time Ron Karinga, because he was also a student there, and he was uh, just as dogmatic on the other side, you know that you know, I've got I've got the message. And uh, for me as a student, I'm looking at you know both of them, and then you know I'm going through a lot of changes because you know at the time I was. Um, I probably was headed toward a career as a computer programmer. Uh, I was working on the UCLA campus and I you know, thought about becoming a scientist and stuff. Mm. And, and then I got drawn into attending the first class on race relations in America. And I guess it was taught in the fall of 1968. Okay. And, yeah. But I'm also very much involved. Who taught it, by the way? That would be interesting. Gary Nash, by the way, he's still, he's still around. And later on, I, I wrote a textbook uh, with him, uh, right. African-American history textbook. 
he was a white professor who was kind of um, um, drawn in to to um, you know this because you know he was interested in in social history and so I took that I sat in on that class I would come over during my lunch hour and and listen to it and and he found out that I was writing articles about you know, people like Stokely Carmichael and others. And uh, so now, this was for local newspapers, for magazines, for national yeah, for, publications, for, for the LA free press mainly. Okay. And uh, so, so he kind of saw this uh, uh, black person in his classroom um, who was not a registered student. And uh, so he was curious about me and, you know, just wanted to um, see what I was doing. And, and he recruited me into teaching a small seminar, you know, as a, as a teaching assistant, even though I was not, (laughs) I was not even in graduate school. And I found that was interesting for students because of my background, because I had some experience with the movement. I knew these people. I could invite uh, them in to, um, to speak to my class. Um, you know, and, and, and so that was for me a way of kind of coming to terms with all these divergent streams of black militancy. And seeing those as kind of interesting to study. <laughs> so I, I, I turned myself into a historian. And, uh, and I guess the rest is history. You know, that's, that's what got me interested in writing about the 60s. And my experience as a journalist, um, I was very used to going up to people like um, Karinga, for example. I just walked up to him and said, you know, look, I'd like to interview you. And it turned out we did a two-hour interview. My newspaper, the free press, published the entire thing. And that was back in 1966. Uh, The same with Stokely Carmichael. I could just go up and say, you know, um, uh, I'd like to interview you. And he would set aside the time. And and, uh, so I was interviewing these people during the mid 1960s and i realized that that's not <laughs> that i had certain knowledge that was not typical especially among students and that i i liked conveying that knowledge and but it also meant that i didn't look upon these people as you know larger than life you know they were they were they were people i knew um I could see them at parties. I could talk to them just as, you know, I, uh, like during that time, I was probably one of the few people who had a good relationship with Karinga, with, um, um, you know, the people in the Black Panther Party, people in the Nation of Islam. They all knew me. And right. It was, uh, so they were, they were just people I was curious about. And, and I think they recognized that I was very curious about them. And, uh, and that's kind of the relationship that I maintained as I moved into being a scholar. You know, I, I probably interviewed 
several hundred of the major leaders of the 1960s and 70s. That's amazing. That that's a really really amazing story, um, and and all your connections and interviews, uh, quite quite amazing. Uh, and uh, so in in terms of if we just focus on on Malcolm X, uh, although you know your experience there makes me want to ask about everybody else as well, but um, uh, yeah. So in in terms of the changing of Malcolm's image, I mean it happened with you. Uh, I mean, it happened with him. He he did change, and then your perception of him changed, and and he he's he's become you know I, I I believe a stamp was made with with Malcolm X. Am I correct? I don't know about that, man. It's very likely. Yeah, but but certainly he's he's now you know he's he's seen as you know he's not a dangerous figure anymore. He used to be. Um, what what's your re- reflections on on that? Do you, do you think that's because I I partly think that you know in that whole process, well I definitely think in the whole process he has been uh, his ideas have been uh, distorted, um, whether you know whether for good or for ill or whatever, but um, but they have been distorted, you know whether purposely or not, um, and and. I, I think that's uh, that's a shame because I think that um, uh, you know the, the people don't they, uh, they they put him into this kind of, these categories without properly understanding him. But um, yeah, I just like to you know hear your opinion on his mainstreaming and and his you know becoming you know moving from a kind of dangerous figure. Uh, at least I certainly saw him in that way in in the eighties um, and. And now he's, you know, he, he's not dangerous at all. He's, he's part of the, you know, uh, the, the cultural landscape. Well, you know, I, I know that um, Manning Marable's book uh, got a lot of flack from people who were Malcolm um, admirers um, because he um, talked about aspects of Malcolm's life that kind of undermine that notion of this person who was pure, uh, he would never run around with women, you know, unlike other black leaders. Uh, uh, he was, you know, you know, this, what I would call the kind of mythological Malcolm, not, not so much that it wasn't true, but it was kind of an unreal image. And um, so Manning's approach of, of just saying, look, when you're looking at Malcolm X, you're looking at a life of reinvention. That's his title, I think. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Malcolm did reinvent himself. That's not bad. You know, it's because I yeah. think each reinvention was a better version of himself. And, um, but it also means that you can't put him in a box. You know, that his, his life was varied. His life was, was uh, he changed with the times that he was in. Um, Probably without Martin Luther King, Malcolm X would not have become the person because it was, you know, he changed in part because of Birmingham, changed right. in part because he saw the masses of black people being mobilized and he wanted to be part of that mobilization. And, um, and, and I think that that ability to change is not something that I, I look down upon. I, I think that someone who doesn't change during their lifetime is, is uh, not a very interesting person. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think that, that uh, 
I, I, I'm always worried about somebody who's looking for the heroic, mythological, charismatic figure. Hmm. Uh, I, I think that when we look at history, those kinds of figures are pretty dangerous because followers will follow them anywhere. Yeah. Even over the cliff, you know, that, that you want to have a leader who respects their followers. You want to have yeah. a leader who is capable of change when change is necessary. And so I think that I would see Malcolm as a person who had just so much potential um, that was never realized because he was assassinated at, at just the time when he was going out on his own. Yeah. You know, that he, his life was actually, uh, he might've been saved by Elijah Muhammad, but I think it was also um, limited Yeah, because he was, he was forced to be the loyal follower rather than um, making his own decisions. So I, I, so I think that Malcolm, it, it just so fascinates me, just what would have happened if he had lived. Yeah. You know, just, but, it, but again, it's probable that he would not have, you know, because there were just so, you know, how many black leaders survived the 60s? Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, this, this call by the families, you know, of, of JFK, RFK, Martin Luther King, and, and I can't remember if, if any of the uh, Malcolm X's daughters had joined in, but certainly Malcolm X's name, you know, for the four people, the four biggest assassinations of the 60s, you know, I mean, um, how that undoubtedly changed the trajectory of U.S. history. I mean, had, had the four of them lived. Uh, well, which which I mean, four would you put in that category? Well, no, I... I well, uh, I'm just saying the the, the four assassinations that, uh, you know, there's been a call by the families for John F. Kennedy, Robert F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King, oh, and Malcolm you. X for reopening the files, for having a, a Truth and Reconciliation uh, Commission. I'm not sure if you're aware of that call that was made last year by the families. But, um, yeah. I mean, yeah, you know, uh, um, yeah, and certainly, you know, as you were saying, you know, um, you know, would he have survived? Because look at how many people you know did not survive. And and yeah, I mean, let's say just those four people. And and I mean, there are others like Fred Hampton and others that uh, Medgar I mean, Evers. No. Um, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Medgar Evers. That's right. I mean, um, you know, had these people lived, uh, the, the the whole history of the country would have would have been different. The trajectory, I think, would have been very, very different. I think it's a, tra a tragedy of historical proportions, you know, that, that actually changed history, I think. I've had you here a long time. Uh, so just to, to close off, the question I would ask quickly is, if you were to summarize, you know, Malcolm X and his struggle, what people should uh, remember today and take more seriously, um, would it be the, the, the capacity to change, as, as you were talking about? I think the capacity to change and, and face the changing realities um, with courage. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think that he, he did not take the easy route. You know, it would have been easy for him. He was very good at being a recruiter for Elijah Muhammad. And, uh, but I think that particularly after, after the police killing of members of the nation in Los Angeles in 1962, 
particularly after that, I think that he was just uh, increasingly aware that um, Elijah Muhammad was not going to be the, the kind of political leader that uh, the black community needed. And uh, because that was just not his, his function, he, he saw himself as a religious leader. And, uh, and I think that what, what Malcolm X tried to do was to, was to bring that um, skepticism. You know, people now have called yeah. you know, this pessimism about the future. But, you know, that, that pessimism can, can make you vulnerable to despair. And what he was trying to say is that, yeah, we're not going to get anything easy in American mm-hmm. society. Um, but neither are colonized people in Africa and Asia going to get yeah. anything easy. You know, it, it's going to take a struggle to free yourself. And, um, and we might as well get on with that struggle. And that's what he meant by, by any means necessary. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a call to violence. It was a call to figure out what was necessary. And, you know, I, I think that that, um, you know, I, I think sometimes we as black people, um, you know, make these choices so, uh, so sharply, you know, between violence and nonviolence. Uh, my own feeling is that if you can get something nonviolently and you turn toward violence, that's stupid. Just plain out, plain, plainly stupid. You know, you would always want to try, you know, if if you're, if you're a colonized people, you know, there's Gandhi, Gandhi showed that, you know, you could achieve independence pretty much nonviolently. Mm-hmm. Uh, or at least using that strategy and, and get a long way using it. Martin Luther King showed, and, and even more, the young people in SNCC showed that you can make a lot of gains nonviolent. Yeah. So only a, a stupid person would say, you know, well, I, yeah, I might have gotten, gotten what I need nonviolently, but I, I'm just going to try to use violence to get it. You know, that doesn't make any sense. And uh, so I think that's the way I interpret by any means necessary. It's not a call to violence. It's a call to recognize that in, in the event that you can't get what you feel you deserve nonviolently, then you have to consider by any means necessary. And, and I think most black Americans would agree with that, mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, that we're not going to just sit and wait a hundred more years to get some basic rights. Um, and, um, and, but, uh, but it also, it recognizes that nonviolence can be disruptive. You can yeah. say that, uh, unless we get our rights, we're, we're going to, um, disrupt ordinary life. You know, so there's lots of steps between killing people and, uh, doing nothing. And, and I think that that's, that's where um, Malcolm X departs from King, because I think King has a, a deep abiding faith that, that nonviolence is the only way. And, and it probably is the only way 
that recognizes the need in the end for reconciliation. Yeah. That ultimately we're, unless a few of us can escape this planet, we're going to be living on this planet for the rest of our lives. Mm -hmm. That's true for young people as well as old people. So part of the reasons why we've at the King Institute launched this world house project is, is that King talked about the world house where all of us have to live, you know, regardless of our religion or our ethnicity or our race. We, we're all, except for maybe one person might get over to Mars, we're all going to be living here for the rest of our time on Earth. And it makes sense to try to find some option. You know, and King posed the question of chaos or community. I would choose community mm-hmm. before going to chaos. And, uh, you know, that's, that's a, <laughs> it just seems logical to me. It, it's not even a moral statement. Absolutely. Now, um, if, if I, I, I mean, I know you do a lot of work and, and I mean, the book we've been talking about is, is quite old now. Um, if, if any listeners want to, you know, find out about what you're doing now, about your projects, um, what you're working on at present, uh, where can they find that? Um, one of, one of the things, uh, I would say go to Google. Yeah, okay. Google. <laughs> Not a problem. Uh, a, a, lot, a lot of my life is on, is on, on the web. And, Excellent. And particularly at the King Institute website. Okay. Well, I want to thank you so much for this interview. Uh, it's, it's, uh, we've had some technical challenges throughout it and I, I appreciate your perseverance uh, and it's been a real pleasure. It's been informative and enjoyable. Thanks so much. Once again, the book is Malcolm X, the FBI file published in 1991 and the second edition in 2012 by Skyhorse Publishing. And we've been speaking to the author Claiborne Carson. Thanks also to you, our listeners. Make sure you sign up for our notifications so you don't miss any new interviews on this channel in the future. And I look forward to seeing you on the next episode.